Well, good morning. You guys may have a seat. Uh, my name is Calvin. I am the high school director here, and uh, I'm really excited to be with you this morning. Uh, it feels like it's been a while since I've seen you, like almost like last year. Uh, thank you for the pity laugh. I appreciate it. It makes me feel good. Um, so I get to conclude our two-part series, uh, which is entitled, God Still Has a Plan for Your Life. And we're going to be looking at the book of Jonah, but before we get there, I want to do an introduction talking about written language. And I, I read a lot. I'm kind of a book nerd. And so one of the things I find interesting about written language is that it doesn't carry the nuances and complexities of verbal communication. So for instance, let's say someone says, I love you. This man in the field right here makes a proclamation of, I love you. When we read this, we're not sure necessarily where he's em- what he's emphasizing. So he could be saying, I love you. Or, I love you, or I love you. Right? When we read this, we're not sure exactly which word the emphasis carries, and each emphasis could change the context of where this is being said. So, for instance, let's say he says, I love you because his girlfriend just said that she doesn't love him. Oh, so sad. Or he's saying, I love you, because he's finally revealing his feelings for his long-lost love. Whatever the context is can change the emphasis of the words. This is why we use bold or italics or underline to emphasize certain words in a sentence. So when it comes to our series title, God Still Has a Plan for Your Life, I believe we're all going to emphasize certain words according to our own personal experience. So some of you might read this and emphasize the word still. Maybe it feels like God has abandoned you and you don't know what he's doing in your life. And so to know that God still has a plan for your life gives you hope and comfort. Maybe the word plan is what hones in on you. And as you read that, you say, man, I don't feel like I have a purpose. I'm meaningless or I'm aimless. Knowing that God has a plan for you uh, gives you excitement encouragement, direction. Maybe the word your is what you need to hear this morning because it seems like everyone else knows what God wants them to do, but you haven't heard anything from God. And so to know that God still has a plan for your life is uh, reinvigorating, which gives you a fresh hope to pursue what God might have for you. When I read this sentence, I think the most important word is God because everything in the sentence hinges on God. If God is the one who has the plan, then the plan is going to flow from his character. And if we learn about him, we learn about the plan. I mean, if we changed it and we said, Oprah still has a plan for your life, we'd be like, woo, free cars. Like, that's Oprah's plan for you. Or if I said, like, Dr. Frankenstein has a plan for your life, now it's creepy and we probably don't want that plan. So if, if God is the one who has the plan, then we need to know who God is to figure out what this plan is. So we're going to look at the book of Jonah, and we're going to read it with the hopes of discovering who this God is, maybe beginning to get a glimpse of what his plan may be. Now, when you hear the name Jonah, what do you think? Whale, right? Instantly we go to whale. The sad part is that's only like two or three verses of this whole story. So we're going to read this with a fresh eyes, and I'm actually not going to project the words behind me. You can follow along in your Bible if you'd like, but I want you to just hear the story. So I'm going to read it, uh, and just one warning, I'm going to do voices because I like doing that. So this is the book of Jonah, the word of the Lord. We're going to do the whole book. 
Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. For me, I think God sounds like Mufasa. Like Simba. So that's just, just so you know where that's coming from. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Real quick, just we need to understand Nineveh to get a better idea of why Jonah reacts the way he does. Nineveh was a major city and at one time the capital of Assyria. And Assyria was the nation that came through and wiped out the northern kingdom of Israel and exiled most people from their land. Israelites hated Assyrians. So God's call to Jonah would be similar to God calling a Jew in the 1940s and saying, go to Berlin and call out against the Nazis for their evil has come up before me. Or in our modern context, maybe God calling an American and saying, go to the Taliban, speak to them. So when we see Jonah running away, we begin to see is he, maybe he's afraid because he thinks if he goes there, they're probably going to kill him. So Jonah runs away. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we might not perish. Here we begin to get a little bit of an unfavorable picture of Jonah. Here the ship is threatening to rip in half from the storm, and Jonah is taking a nap completely unconcerned with what's happening above, right? Jonah, we're beginning to see, is not necessarily a positive character. He runs away from God and doesn't care if the ship is going to break. And so the sailors, they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. I love this part because... All these sailors are calling out to their own gods, hoping that one of these gods could stop this sea storm. And then Jonah comes forward. He goes, oh, my God is the one who made the sea. And they're like, wait, wait, hold a second. Your God made the sea, and you're running away from him. So you got on a boat to get away from him, but he made the sea. You're a moron. Like, you have just endangered all of our lives. Side note, if you happen to pitch up, pick up hitchhikers, which I'm assuming most people here don't do that, but if you do, and the guy's like, or girl's like, I'm running away from God, might not want to pick him up. Might be a bad idea. Might, like, lose a wheel or something. Anyway, so these sailors are afraid because Jonah's running away from the one who made the sea. 
Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. And then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life, and the deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the root of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet, you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. So this prayer that Jonah prays in the belly of the fish is beautiful. But if we read closer, we recognize that Jonah does not once apologize or recognize his disobedience. Rather, he says, God, I knew you would rescue me. He never says, God, I'm sorry I ran away. Forgive me for my brokenness. So again, we get this picture of Jonah that isn't necessarily favorable. He's messed up a lot and isn't necessarily getting what God's doing. I'll see that even more. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh 
By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. The Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city, hoping to see it destroyed. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. The Lord said, You Pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? And this is how the story of Jonah ends. And we realize that Jonah did not run away because he was afraid of dying. But he was afraid of seeing God extend mercy to his enemies. He was unwilling that God should forgive others. The the tragedy of Jonah is that Jonah experienced grace and mercy and could not extend it to others. That he knew God was gracious and slow to anger, but he didn't live that. It was a head truth, but not necessarily a heart truth. And the tragedy of Jonah is that at times we're not too different. That we would rather see judgment come on our enemies than maybe grace and forgiveness. So while we can read the story of Jonah and maybe look down on him, suddenly we realize that it's spoken to us as well. We're not that much different. So what do we learn about God from this book? First of all, we we learn that God is a God of endless second chances. This is your first fill-in for the morning. God is a God of endless 
second chances. This story is filled with second chances. God gives second chances to the sailors, right? They were worshiping false idols, hollow gods. And, and through this experience, they turned from worshiping these idols and they turned to worshiping God. So God gives them a second chance to enter into a new relationship with him. God gives a second chance to Nineveh. That Nineveh, they were opposed to what God was doing. And God, through Jonah's message, uh, relents of the disaster and gives them a second chance to try to follow God once again. God gives numerous second chances to Jonah. Jonah runs away and God rescues him with a fish and gives him a second chance to proclaim this message to Nineveh. And then when Jonah follows God in action, but his heart is far from God, he's unwilling to see this forgiveness happen, God gives him a second chance with the story of the plant and reveals that Jonah cares more about a plant than he does people. God gives second chance after second chance after second chance over and over and over again in the story. And I think this is something that is, I know I need to be reminded of as we enter a new year. And you may feel similar as well. Every new year, I experience both excitement and disappointment because I'm looking forward to a new year and the possibilities that it holds. Uh, New changes, new things happening and a chance to actually change. But then I'm also looking back at the previous year and reminded of all the ways I didn't change, how far I fell short of my hopes and desires, how many second chances I missed or misused. And when it comes to how we experience second chances, I think that we let the world inform us of second chances rather than necessarily God. See, with like for work, let's say, you maybe get three or four second chances, but by the fifth or sixth, you're probably going to be out of a job. And with friends, friends may give us more second chances, but over time, they'll eventually say, I knew you were going to do this. You were always like this. And so what to us feels like a mistake to others becomes our general behavior. And the temptation is to take this worldly understanding of second chances and project that onto God. And and so we mess up and we're a little bit afraid that God might not receive us this next time if we keep making the same mistake over and over and over again. But God's mercy and patience is so different from the mercy and patience of the world. God's love is never ending, ever flowing like the ocean's tide. You cannot stop God from giving you second chances. He will do it over and over and over again. And and God gives second chances impartially, irregardless of race, gender, socioeconomic status, even religion. God keeps giving second chances to Christians, Jews, Buddhists, Muslims, Hindus. Everyone in this world is constantly receiving second chances from God. But the danger is that we stop at the second chances and we don't turn towards the source of who gives them. See, every second chance is an opportunity for change. Every second chance is an opportunity to turn towards Jesus, who is our great second chance. That Jesus lived the life that we couldn't give and then offers us his life and says, live in me. Give yourself over me. Let's do this life together. I got you. And what happens sometimes is that we keep receiving second chances, but we never turn to God. And my fear is, is that if we just keep taking second chances and we forget to live with God, who is the source of all second chances, that one day when we pass from this life into the next, 
We're gonna knock on heaven's door and God's gonna say, I never knew you. I kept giving you second chance after second chance and that was my mercy. But you never turned to me. You took what I gave, but you didn't take me. So this year, as we enter into a new year, new possibilities, I implore you to cling to the God of second chances, not just what he gives. Turn to him. Give yourself over to him. Live in this relationship with him because it is life-giving. It makes sense of everything. God is a God of endless second chances. And if God is a God of endless second chances, why does he keep doing this? Why does he keep offering redos and do-overs? Well, the reason is because God's plan is a heaven-filled earth. This is the entire story of the Bible. Here we go, two minutes. All right, God creates the world, and heaven and earth are united. God walks in the garden with Adam. And through man and woman's disobedience and rebellion, heaven and earth are torn asunder. They are ripped apart. And then Jesus comes on the scene, and his message is, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we see heaven begin to inbreak into our world. And so we live in this in-between time where heaven is invading earth, but it's not fully here yet. And Revelation ends with a declaration that heaven will come down to earth, and we will once again be united, heaven and earth. We will dwell with God, and he will dwell with us. The story arc of the Bible is beginning, middle, beginning is that we return to what it once was, this perfect union with God. So what God is doing in the world is that heaven is invading earth. And he invites us to be a part of that. See, we got to remember that this is what God does. This is God's plan. God makes this happen, and he invites us into it. Sometimes we get this unhealthy notion that church and Christianity and all this stuff is what we do. And God did his part. No, no, it's always God's work. God does all of it. He takes the credit, he gets all of it, and he invites us into this. And so this new year, as we realize that God's plan is a heaven-filled earth, this begins to impact everything. It's not just about saving people. That's a huge part of it. But it's about changing systems, powers. It's about bringing justice to where there is injustice, that we can be a part of heaven invading earth. And so the first question is, are you on board? Are you living your life with God? Are you aligned with what he is about? Because heaven is the right ordering of all things according to the character of God. So are you on board? Are you part of that? And if you are, then this begins to impact how we work, how we spend our money, how we spend our time. I think a great question we have to ask ourselves is how would you do your job if you were in heaven? And some of you are like, whoa, whoa, my job will not be in heaven. Let's not go there. But we have to begin. If heaven is invading earth, if the life of heaven is somehow present today, how do you work then? How would you work if you were in heaven? How would you go to school? How would that impact your leisure time? I don't think we're going to be watching as much TV in heaven as we do now. It's not saying that TV is bad. I love TV, maybe too much, and that's more indicting towards me. But there's, it's a right ordering. How do we order our lives according to what God is doing? 
I think a huge part of this, for us especially, is how we spend our money, uh, how, we, how we consume. I don't know if you know this, but although the U.S. is only 5% of the world's population, we use 25% of the world's energy. That our lifestyle comes at the cost of other people. This is an unsustainable lifestyle. This is, I don't see the way that we live is not necessarily a heaven-filled earth. And so we got to begin to ask and say, okay, if heaven is going to be, if there's all things in common, how does that force the way we live? I mean, we got to live differently. People are going to think we're weird because of the way we live. Because we're not living according to the ways of this world, but to the life of heaven. If, if God is doing a new thing in this world, if he is constantly giving us second change, chances so that we can change, so that there can be a turnaround from living for ourselves to living for him, he's calling us each second chance to change and to welcome the life of heaven into the here and now. So I've kind of already addressed this, but if God is a God of endless second chances and his plan is a heaven-filled earth, then our role is to be faithful. It sounds simple, but it will take a lifetime to learn. Our role is to be faithful. God is doing a work around us. God is doing a work here. God's doing a work in your home, in your office, wherever you're at, God's doing something. And faithfulness invites us to open our eyes to see the world afresh and begin to say, what is God doing and how can I jump on board with that? How can I be involved in God's mission in this world? For some of you, I think faithfulness might be like Jonah. That faithfulness will call you away. Faithfulness might mean going to another country, maybe to another state, maybe even going down the street to talk to your neighbor. But Faithfulness for you as you're having this conversation of God and saying, God, what are you doing? It may involve going. And that might be fearful. It might be scary. But if God calls, we can't do anything but follow. Because his voice is good and he is a good shepherd. So some of you, God might be calling you. Others, your call to faithfulness might be similar to the sailors. Is that the sailors didn't stop being sailors. They stayed sailors, but they did it in a new way. They, they turn from worshiping false idols and they turn to worshiping God. And so what is it that you spend most of your time doing? And what might need to change to be more faithful? I mean, if you're a stay-at-home mom, how can you change diapers as an act of worship to God? Faithfulness impacts every realm of life. And God may not be calling you away, but might just be calling you to do things differently where you're at to begin to see what he's doing around you and to jump on board with that. And for some of you, God's, or being called to faithfulness might be like the king of Nineveh, who used his power and prestige and authority to influence others. Some of you have incredible influence, incredible authority where you're at, either at work or maybe within social spheres. How can you begin to use that authority and prestige to impact others. So if you own a business or have incredible sway in your business, how can you begin to bring heaven to earth through your business practices? Maybe it means being less about money and more about caring for people, taking care of your employees and seeing to it that they are provided for above and beyond normal means. 
I don't know what this looks like for you, but some of you have incredible authority and God is calling you to be faithful with that, to use it in line with what he's doing around you. God still has a plan for your life. We have received countless second chances in Christ. So may we, as we leave here, jump on board with what God is doing in our midst. And we have fresh eyes to see what he's doing. I just want to pray a blessing over you guys before we go, uh, and then we'll continue on with the service. But let me just pray this over you. People of Canyon Hills, may God open your heart to his abundant grace, his unending mercy, and his wild and reckless love. May God open your eyes to the ways that he is at work around you in your very midst. May God reveal to you heaven's invasion of earth. And may God lead you into faithfulness wherever he has you, wherever he calls you, in whatever you're doing, and with whatever he's given you. Praise in Christ's name, amen.